I share with you that uh, a believer who is gifted with discernment is going to at the same time also be gifted with a healthy and a kind of vital sense of faith. Right. Because the idea of discernment, as we looked at this term, dio, diacrino here, uh, dia means to penetrate through. It's a penetrating preposition that I shared with you before. It literally is translated in the English through or thorough, through or thorough. When you remove that prefix from a noun or a verb, it operates in its normal sense, like to look, to look. Um, if we went dia widow, dia widow means to look thoroughly, to see fully. When we go dia crino, it means to judge thoroughly. The idea of the dia means to penetrate into a subject and pierce through so as to know the subject well. OK, that's the idea that we gave. We also talked about why God gave us two eyes, because with two eyes, you can do two things. You can pierce through the appearance of a thing into the essence of it. With two eyes, using the, the number two, with your fundamental uh, empirical sense, you can look at a thing, see a thing, but then you must see through that thing to know its essence. Things have a final expression and then things have a deeper ontological essence. It's also what we do as I'm priming us when we say, that we know that person. When you know a person, you know a person deeply. In fact, um, yeah, another preposition that is correlative to dia is the preposition epi. And epi is a preposition of depth, okay? When we talk about the epicenter of something, we're talking about the core of a thing. And when we come to know people, we know people more than superficially. People can know you superficially with one eye, the fundamental eye of knowing you on a public social level. And then there are other people who will know you with the second eye. That is the eye of a closer, more intimate relationship. Now, that makes sense, right? That's why God gives us two eyes. And I told you when our eyes are working properly, they work in synchronicity. When your eyes work appropriately, they're working in synchronicity. Now, often when babies are born, the synchronicity of their eyes is not fixed well, and they will actually cycle in opposite directions. I have no idea what that would be like on an experiential level, but you might know some adults whose eyes swing hither and yon, okay? Ask them, what does that look like and what does that feel like? Maybe a distraction, right? Um, but the point is, is that two eyes is not in order to have two independent perspectives. Two eyes is in order that the eyes work in synchronicity to create a unity of insight in that one thing that they're looking at. A unity of insight in that one thing. So your eyes really will focus in, both eyes will focus in on a thing capture it, focus on it. And then because you have two eyes, you will actually be able to pan broadly and have what is called a broad view of the thing. So there's two elements to the idea of diacrino is seeing a thing broadly. We talked about that on a uh, psychological or on a uh, propositional or on a sociological level. That means getting the context. 
So you guys, a lot of you are keeping up with me as we deal with subject matters in the world and I'm giving you material. And when I give you material, I'm giving you material to study and almost all the material has correlating factors. I'm not giving you independent stuff, sending you over here and sending you over there. When you put it together, it actually corroborates. The point is to go deep and to be able to see broad. So when you can contextualize a thing, you can actually understand it better. Same thing with physical sight. I talked to you guys about this before too. And so I'm just reiterating for some people. Your eyes are working constantly in conjunction with your mind. And it's working so fast that you can't even keep up with it conscientiously. Your eyes are working constantly. It's part of a necessary feedback loop for you to sustain a present understanding of what you are dealing with. Like right now, I've shared this with you. You are listening to me and you are actually seeing deeper than your visual eyes because your eyes are feeding information to you in conjunction with what your ears are hearing and your mind is now taking both those pieces of data and filtering them through what you already know after all these years in your life. And it's compositing a conclusion that is allowing you to say, we are in this space at this time doing this thing, which we have done many, many times before because we are students of God's word. You have now been able to kind of sit in a pocket of familiarity. And now you can actually begin to focus in on our subject matter. I want to just drive this home a little bit more. If you were a brand new person in the building, you could easily be distracted by all the newness of your circumstantial environment. Does that make sense? Also for a child, that's what happens to them whenever they're put in a new environment. They are trying to acclimate the environment. They're absorbing all the data. When you and I mature, data gathering becomes a sort of meta-synchronicity that goes on just anatomically with your body so that the only thing you need to do on a much more conscious level is focus. You have all the tools for analysis. All you have to do is focus. And some of us as adults, we still have ADHD, don't we? And we got to wrestle with focus initially and then recover focus because we can drift, right? And it's not that we're drifting with our eyes, we're drifting with our mind. So what will happen often is, and, and I should just go on from there, we'll lose focus. That's the whole point. The man or the woman that is really good at the process A, or let's say one, of going from focus to the process of identity or identifying, identifying the thing, knowing the thing, understanding the thing. They know how to move from focus to process. And we talked about the process being that of analysis, deconstruction, right? Evaluating, right? Being able to assess a thing. That's what it means to be a student. Um, some of y'all remember, might remember the joys of being in class or the, uh, the torment of it. But a good student is somebody that learns how to learn and begins to love learning. So this is really what should be parents' goals with their children early on, to help them figure out how to learn and how to love learning. Because when once they have learned to love learning, 
your job is done. There's nothing else you need to do with your kids once they learn to love learning. Because now the whole world and every second of the day for the rest of their lives is on them to build their worldview. Once you teach them how to learn and how to love learning, you leave them alone. Your job is done because that's what God does with us. This is John chapter 6, 45. I'm going to lay a foundation and drill down a little further. This is what it says in John 6, 45. You've heard it before, but listen to it. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be what? There it is. There it is. Now watch what it says. Every man, therefore, that hath what? Hearing of the ear for us is fundamental because we're dealing with metaphysical things right now, are we not? So for us, we're not dealing with empirical things. Propositional truth at the divine level is metaphysical for us. So hearing is essential. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath what? That's the process. Mathetithes, it means to be a disciple. You hear And then you commit to the process of learning. That's why Jesus took them disciples for three and a half years and took them through all kinds of experiences. It was a compilation of what they saw, what they heard, what they experienced. By the time Jesus was done with them after three years, they were ready. And so you and I are that way, too. So we talked about the need to be able to uh, obtain mechanisms by which we know and understand a thing. And then I actually talked about the, a, a, a key medium to that end. For some of you, this board may not mean anything, but Psalm 119, uh, 104 says this. I'm going to quote a few Psalms to underscore the medium. Obviously, the medium for the people of God is the word of God. Would you agree with that? Yeah. It's critical to our discernment. This here is what we call the instrumental means. Listen to what it says. Through your precepts, do I get what? Right. So through God's word, am I taught how to focus, deconstruct, analyze, evaluate, critique and resolve? Because that third category is resolve. Resolve. What that means is God teaches you and I how to judge. How to judge. Because judgment is the process of focus on a point, work that point through, come to a conclusion and make your judgment. That's exactly what God calls us all to do every day. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate what? Right. So there is the negative benefit to properly um, evaluating, properly judging. When you properly judge, you not only benefit from the truth you ascertain, but now you get to properly respond to the error that you have avoided for actually ascertaining to the truth. Meaning we should hate every false way. Right. And, and hating that means to abhor it at the level of protecting yourself from succumbing to it. It doesn't mean hating people. It doesn't mean becoming self-righteous in your hatred towards person. You hate false ways because false ways are the reason for which you and I need discernment. We wouldn't need the gift of discernment if if it wasn't ipso facto that everything in front of us needed to be analyzed, deconstructed and proven to be the big word there. Pseudo means lie in the Greek, by the way. Okay, you and I are dealing with lies all the time. And I'm so very thankful that this congregation is not um, uh, toxically averted to us knowing that our, our world is full of lies. 
And, and that's biblical. I don't, I, you know, you should know that. First John chapter five around verse 19 or 20 says the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. He was a liar from the beginning. So that you and I understand that the structures and systems and the processes of our world and the, the, the meta propaganda that is relentless in our society is a kind of fog of war. I told you that it's a fog of war. We're always in a war. This is Genesis 3, 1, the serpent. Wherever there's a garden, there's a serpent. Wherever there's a serpent, there's a war. And the believer has to know the goal of the enemy is to keep you in the fog of war so that you actually don't know where the enemy is. Discernment actually deconstructs the fog. That'll come home in a minute, but it's important for you to know. I just sent something out to you guys on that. And so what the enemy does in our world system, because he tries to mimic God, he goes before God, he lays out a vision and he brings people into the trap of that vision. That vision creates chaos and mayhem and fog occurs. It's the fog of war. Now, in the midst of that fog, you and I have to be very strategic and careful as to understand what we are not seeing because of the fog. See, the goal of the fog is to keep you from seeing where the enemy is and what he's up to. That's a metaphor for not having the necessary intelligence. Intelligence is the end game for winning any battle. Did that make some sense? This is why Jesus is called the Eletheia. He's called the truth. If you are my disciples, you will continue in my word and you will know the truth and the truth will liberate you. That makes sense, right? But it also infers that Obtaining the truth is an effort. It's a labor. It's a toil. It requires focus. It requires identifying the essence of a thing. And it requires the faith that is needed to resolve. I got it. I got it. It's really, really important for us to to know that. Um, There it is. And we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in wickedness. That's like really a radical but necessary bifurcation. And that's a resolve statement. That's a judgment right there. That's a judgment. You know what that judgment is saying? We know. Again, that's our Greek term. We know. It means to understand. John uses that a lot. Gnosis is a prominent word that he uses, but weedo is a different verb form of gnosis for us. And it means to be resolved that we have come to an adequate understanding of what is. So we're settled in the facts on a theological level, just for your knowledge, that is called epistemology. Epistemology is the ability to come to a certain conclusion that a thing is so. Does that make some sense? Right. So uh, John would say, we know that we're of God and the whole world lies in 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 the lap of the wicked one. That's really what that's saying. One of Psalm 119, verse 130. I want to pull that verse up for a moment and look at that. Psalm 119, 130. Here it is. The entrance of your word does what? It gives understanding to the simple. So now this is where we bring in the medium of scripture. Your Bible is critical to your discernment. Your Bible is a plumb line that measures. It's a cannon and plumb line that measures the integrity of a thing. It measures the trueness of a thing. In, uh, in architecture, in construction work, you use plumb lines. We use measures. And we try to get to a trueness of a thing. Is that right? 
You, you need to know if a thing is true. If the floor is not true, if the floor is crooked, your whole building is going to be off. If you don't detect it, you need measures to detect it. What the word of God does for us when we properly apply it is it proves whether or not a thing is true or false when properly when properly employed. So I'm giving you text to underscore how important the word of God is, because the word of God is light for us. It gives what? Light. It cuts the lights on. Now, if it cuts the lights on, then now the fog dissipates and we can begin to see things and identify them for what they are. And now we can see because what the devil did in Genesis three was create a fog and Eve got lost in the fog. Did she not? By the second engagement, she was lost in the fog. She didn't understand his strategic attack upon her was to question the integrity of God. She was dislodged from the certainty that God was telling her the truth. And now she became vulnerable to an alternative truth experience. This is what we call heresy. An alternative truth experience. This is called heresy. I'll I'll tell you what that is briefly. We'll move on. When you and I are not certain that what we have at the moment is the truth, we're susceptible to heresy. And what I mean by that, heresia is the Greek term that literally simply means to make a choice. Heresy is having a choice and making that choice and that choice being the wrong choice. Did that make some sense? Right. So, and I've shared this before, God doesn't set you up for that. Even though our present world is filled with that notion, Follow me. The present world is filled with the notion that your society is best when you have choices. That's not the highest level of safety. The highest level of safety is truth. Right. So if you have the truth, you don't need choices. But because many of us are not capable of staying committed to truth grounds, epistemological certainty is that that's the way they call it. You and I are capable of being tossed to and fro. Now choices become a kind of pseudo freedom at which we want. I want to make the choice whether or not I can go here, go there, do this, do that, do the other thing. I want to make the choice as to which God I want to serve. Well, that's exactly what the devil was doing with Eve, setting her up to tell her you have the choice as to whether or not you want to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good or evil versus not. Well, God didn't give her that choice. He didn't really give us that choice. So again, here's what I want to draw home where you and I are committed to pursuing the truth, even though it's rigorous, even though sometimes it's painful. And even though truth will cut against your own intuition because of a proclivity for bias. And even though you can be persecuted for holding to the truth. When you and I are persuaded of the claims of truth and the benefits of truth you and I will be less likely to be inclined to heresy. We're getting ready to find out because we're going to use an example of the Apostle Paul dealing with a woman pretending to be a purveyor of truth, but she was a purveyor of heresy. So we're going to penetrate into that and deconstruct that as a model as I I get ready to deal with the issue of discernment, if that makes some sense. All right. So I've given you a little foundation. The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful principle. Lord, open my eyes that I may understand, you know, the wonders and magic of your law. And there are many Bible verses that lay this out. Isaiah chapter one, chapter eight, verse 20. You guys know the principle, right? To the law and to the testimony. 
If a person speaks but does not speak in relationship, submission to, as a framework of, as a prism through the word of God, it's because there's no light in them. Now, this is an interesting proposition, too, because what that really means is you need to know the word of God well enough to know when somebody else is saying they know the word of God, but don't. Okay. Right. So it's really important for you to know the word of God well enough to know when other people are saying they know the word of God. But you go, ah, no, you really don't. So there's a reason why I'm pushing you guys down into the substratums of eschatology. You guys know that's what I'm doing with you. I'm actually helping you understand the foundation upon which why mankind feels so compelled to be in control of outcomes. That's eschatological Uh, Those are eschatological impulses. Why is mankind so compelled to feel like he has to be in control of outcomes? That makes some sense, right? Of course, because if he feels like he has to be in control of outcomes, he can play God. So I'm going to drill that down a little bit and then we're going to go to our text. What if you're smart enough to hoodwink people and they really follow your propositional BS, then you have power over people. You can predict outcomes. You can make things happen. Did you guys hear what I just stated? Right. And this is what governments do. They've been doing this since Genghis Khan, even before. Philosophy is critical to governing people. See what I'm getting at? And what I love about the gospel and I love about Christ, which is why to me it's superior per, um, you know, per excellence, just no, no system of theology really equates to it, is that truly when you have a relationship with Christ at the propositional level, you actually are being liberated from, liberated from <clears throat> the tyranny of systems. You're being liberated from the tyranny of of systems. And that's what a believer comes to recognize. But if you are being liberated from the tyranny of systems, it also means you are becoming a warrior for truth. Okay, And, 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 and what that means is you are being prepared to engage in ideological battles. Because you actually believe in the value of freedom. Freedom in the context of the truth. All right, great. So. Um, having made that statement, let me share with you briefly before we go on to <clears throat> to the account in, uh, in, in, in Acts chapter 16 of what I'm going to call for the moment a micro event. Acts 16 uh, gonna be, is going to be a micro event for, for me. And I do want to talk about the macro events of the subject matter of um, of discerning of spirits. We're going to have one micro event, and then I'm going to talk about the larger one if I have time. I do want to open the floor for questions for us. But listen to <clears throat> listen to this observation. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 20. We're going to look at verses three through nine. And then um, I'm going to actually help help you understand a critical distinction in this this account between uh, John and, 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 uh, and, and Peter. John and Peter are headed to the tomb because the ladies have come back and told them what they have experienced, right? This here is headed to the tomb on the first day of the week. Notice what it says. Let me start at verse one just for people that don't read their Bibles. That's, that's watching. We got 200, 200 300 people that, that watch. And I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't presuppose that people read their Bibles anymore. So a lot of times I have to go to the verses. But if this was 100 years ago, you would know Bible verses like this. 
John chapter 20, verse one says this. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene. Somebody tell me what day is the first day of the week? All right, there we go. Good, because some people don't know that. All right, because you don't have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday in your Bible. Those were all pagan days. You only have first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seven. Y'all got that? Eighth, when we get into ceremonial things. So notice what it says. When it was yet dark, early in the morning, unto the sepulcher, and sees the stone taken away from the sepulcher. We are walking. Then she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. Who is that other disciple? <clears throat> who Jesus loved and said unto them, they have taken away our Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. Verse three, Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and came to the what? Focus, focus. You guys got that? Point of focus. They heard the proposition. They heard the news. They heard all of the ideas. Nobody else cared. They are now engaging in discernment. And the first category of discernment, it's focusing on the point. What is the big deal? The big deal is that somebody said Jesus rose again from the dead. All right, let's investigate it. Time for discernment. You see what I'm getting at? All right. So you see what kind of energy goes into focus? Because they got up and physically went to the tomb. There are men and women who will live and die without the blessing of redemption because even though they hear that Jesus rose from the dead, they're not even willing to go and investigate. So remember now, discernment requires the motivation and drive to investigate. Now we're going to look at the process briefly of investigation because Peter and John are going to be a lesson for us on why we want to be able to work through focus, deconstruction, and ultimately resolution, okay? Watch this. Verse five. Well, I better stay at verse three for a second. I want to really knock this out in 10 minutes at the most. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. Verse four. So they ran both together. Who knows that in your Bible, when the scripture makes mention of running, that it's a metaphor for pursuing God. It's often a metaphor for either pursuing God because you're hungry for him or it's a metaphor of you running for God because you know him and you want other people to know him. The prophets ran. Whenever you were a euangelion, whenever you were a person of good tidings, you would run to share the good tidings. So the ladies ran from the sepulcher to the disciples. Now the disciples are running back to the sepulcher. And the Bible tells you and I to run this race of faith, does it not? Right. Paul made it uh, an assumption to the Galatians. You did run well. Who what did hinder you? So everybody is running a race. If we call ourselves Christians, that means we can't be so lazy as not to run. So they ran both together. The other disciple did outrun Peter. That means that John was younger than Peter and a little faster. So Peter's a little old and a little slow. But watch what it says. And came first to the sepulcher. So who's first at the sepulcher? The young man. Peter is kind of just, he going to get there, but he's just waking, making his way. Now, it's important to know the, 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 the victory is not given to the swift. Okay, is is given to everyone that finishes. John finished. Peter will finish. Right. It doesn't really matter who's first. So the young man is impressive, but Peter impresses on verse five. 
I want to walk this through. And he stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there. So what is he doing? He's not only now focusing, he's identifying it. He's deconstructing it. He's analyzing it. He's evaluating what he sees. This is called in-depth exegetical expository Bible study. Did that make some sense? I've said it years ago. I'll say it to you now. The whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is really the tomb of Jesus. It is a comprehensive testimony of his life, death, burial and resurrection. He came to be put in there. Isn't that what he said in John chapter 12? For this reason came I into the world. And when I'm done dying and rising, I'm going back to the Father. Your Bible is the tomb of Christ. And what you and I are called to do is investigate what's in that tomb. That makes sense, right? All right, let's, let's keep going. And he's stooping down, looking in. I, I need to go back just for a second. I'm sorry. Looking down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. So he stops and he gradually begins the process of deconstruction. He's not rushing to a conclusion. There are a lot of people who think they know doctrine well. They don't. I've been around a long time. They rush to conclusions. Now, if you rush to a conclusion, you may not even know that you're shallow in a proposition or a doctrinal teaching until somebody comes along and tells you, listen, you haven't even scratched the surface of this doctrine. But that's because you rushed. So what John is demonstrating is the temperance of analysis objectively before going deeper into the construction of it. Does that make some sense? Very much so. Watch this. Verse six. Then comes Simon Peter about an hour later following him. And he did what? Rush right on into the sepulcher. Rush right on in. Right. And so, you know, your Bible will tell you the um, patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And he that hasteth with his feet will do what? Sin. Right. Your Bible never really honors haste unless it's a direct response to a clear and explicit imperative of God. All believers are really called to be patient. And discerning. That makes sense, right? So Peter rushes in, just wants to beat John. And, you know, that's Peter's typical way. Nothing wrong with it other than you're getting ready to see an outcome that I'm going to share with you as a um, sort of contradistinction between the two. Peter's not going to get what he needs by rushing in and being hasty. Look at what it says. Then he comes in in the supper. He sees the linen clothes lay there. Do you see it? Verse seven. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with it, but lying with the linen cloth. He's looking at all of that, all of the articles, right? All of the um, artifacts, but wrapped together in a place by itself. I love this. This is what John, John, the one who is writing this, saw this with his own eyes. He said, now, Peter saw everything that I saw. Verse, verse uh, eight. Then went in also that other disciple who came first to the sepulcher, which means Peter went in and Peter went out because John went in after him because the sepulcher wasn't really big enough for two people unless you're going to crowd. Peter goes in and Peter comes out. John goes in and John will go in and come out differently than how he went in. Peter will have went in and came out the same way. 
This is where having a synoptic view of scripture comes in. At. I'm going to show you the other portion of scripture that gives us a fuller insight into Peter's quandary. Is that OK? So now notice what it says. Then went in also the other disciple who took his time. He looked at the information from a distance. He let Peter come in and distract him. He stayed put. When Peter came out, he went on in. Notice what it says. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher. And he what? Bleppo, bleppo, bleppo. He saw and what? Pisties. Pisties. He saw, he believed. Now Peter saw, but Peter did not believe. Peter saw all of the evidence from Genesis to Malachi, but he did not understand really at that moment the coming of Christ. Now, John had a disposition of being able to gradually come up on the data, let the old man go first. When the old man came out, he went in and guess what he was able to do? He was able to deconstruct the data and then put all the data together. He organized the data. He was, be able, he was able to bring some priority to every piece and he came to a resolution. What was that? Christ has risen from the dead. That's a proper interpretation of the evidence, is it not? All right, go with me to the Gospel of uh, Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew will lay this out for us to help us get a, um, a little insight into uh, Peter's struggle. I'm Luke, sorry, Luke, Luke's Gospel, Luke 24, verse 9 through 12. I want us to see what happened to Peter. I want y'all to capture this with me with Peter for a moment. Then we'll go to our next uh, micro example. So uh, start back at verse four, uh, verse six, if you don't mind. Uh, the angel said to the ladies, he's not here, but is risen. Remember how we spoke to you when he was yet in Galilee, verse seven, saying the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified. The third day rise again. They were messengers, too. And they remembered his word. Verse nine and returned from the sepulcher and told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Verse ten. This is the ladies talking. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other Mary that were with them. A bunch of Marys right here. I love this. I could talk at length about where their bitterness has now turned to betterness, even though their folks named them Mary, which means bitter. Mara means bitter, which told these things unto the apostles. Verse 11. And their words seemed to them as what? Idle tales. And they what? Did not believe them. So John going to the temple uh, to the tomb and Peter going to the tomb. Both of them are going in what we call incredulity. They are going not believing. Do you understand what I just stated? I really don't want to stay on that long, but this is where believers can be when we're not prepared for truth in a way in which our minds are prepared for it. You and I can hear propositions but because we have fundamental biases, our limited capacities for referencing what's being said, we won't receive it as true. Did that make some sense? Maybe it did. I'm going to say it one more time. So these ladies had told these men exactly what they saw. They weren't being theologians. This does not justify women to be pastors. All they were were witnesses. They were justified to be euangelions, that is, uh, messengers of the gospel, because they had seen 
not only the evidence of the open tomb and the evidence of the garbs there and the testimony of the angels that fit them. So they went back and told the apostles, he has risen as Jesus said, the angels told us this. And the disciples go, but they're going in unbelief. They do not believe the ladies, do they? Right, and that'll be often where you and I are. This is not a gender thing either. You know, we live in a culture where there are all kind of faulty bifurcations. You already know that, right? Um, but it can be the case where someone is telling you facts that are, they're absolutely in, in, empirically true and they are um, solid facts that are incontrovertible. But until it's clear to you, you won't believe it. Did that make some sense? All right, so I want to put one little parenthetical on it and keep going. Just because you don't believe it doesn't make it wrong. Y'all helping me? Right. So here's what I want us to always know at grace. You can differ with people. It doesn't make you right. Doesn't even make you better. It doesn't even make you smarter. You might actually be stupider. Let me say that again, because I want you to capture this. Just because you disagree with someone does not make you prudent, smart or bright. Jesus will upbraid them for not hearing the ladies. Am I making some sense? So like, so a lot of people think they're smart because they disagree. Disagreement doesn't make you smart. If you don't know why you disagree, if your position is not truly solid where you can affirm your position over against my position or any other person's position, you're just a disagreeable person. And I have not yet found in the Bible that one of the fruits of the spirit is disagreeableness. Uh, let me keep going, because this is where you get all kinds of fictitious uh, categories of uh, divided uh, uh, Christian communi uh, communities around the world. Folks are very disagreeable on things that really don't matter. Right. And you got whole coded groups that are disagreeable, disagreeable, disagreeable. So you disagree. What, what's the point? If your disagreeableness is not rooted in you having an absolute position theologically and scripturally that can benefit the rest of us, your disagreeableness is nothing but a sectarian expression of you wanting to be over there instead of over here. That does not make you a Christian. Right. So now watch this. And their words seemed to be as idle tales and they believed them not. Verse 12. I want to walk this through. Then arose Peter and ran to the sepulchre. I love this because Luke has Peter by himself here. Now we know how to do theology. We know how to do what is called integrated thinking. We understand the both and principle of the synopsis, right? John's gospel is not contradicting Luke's gospel. Right. We're just getting one scenario of multiple scenarios. And we're not even getting all the scenarios because all we got is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't have the other disciples. They have their own. They shared them. They would have had a different nuance too. And all of that would have been a sort of um, uh, kaleidoscope of reality at the core of what they experienced. Does that make some sense? Right. And very important for you and I to know that. Notice what it says. He beheld the linen cloth laid by itself and notice what it says. And he departed. So remember when he went in before John and then came out before John went in? Peter went in before John in John's gospel. And then he came out. The text says here he departed, right? Now notice the next construction. Wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. He went in. 
He was informed, but he was not persuaded. He went in and he was he was informed. He saw what John saw, but he did not come back persuaded. Literally, Peter was perplexed. Thaumazo is a Greek verb there that means to be put in a state of wonder and bewilderment. Can I help you with that? Just a tad. The word is constantly translated in Luke's gospel because Luke is a doctor around the miracles that Jesus did. So when Jesus would do a miracle, you know what the text would say? And the people marveled at what he did. Stay with me. Marveling is cool. Marveling is not discernment to resolve. Marveling is cool, but marveling is not discernment to resolve. That they said, whoa. And some people went, here's a miracle. That's not deep insight on an etymological level or an ontological level. It just means something just happened that we can explain. Y'all keeping up with me? Yeah, you're not a theologian because you just go, whoa, at scripture. You're not a theologian because you got, whoa, go, whoa, at the miracles. So you got whole denominations that sell their ministry on miracles and signs and wonders and supernatural. They love going around going, whoa, whoa. And these are the people who are in the fog of war under false teachings, emotionalism and scam miracles. I had to say that. Can I just develop that? Right. The point is, because you go, whoa, man, doesn't mean you learned anything. You can still be as dumb as a billy goat going, whoa. Because what's happening with Peter is Peter is in a state of disarray, marveling at what's going on. He took it apart. He didn't put it back together. Did that make some sense? Remember, putting it back together is understanding it. John put it back together. He went in, he took it apart, he put it back together, and John what? Believed. Peter is being disciplined by the Lord here. And you and I can take this as an example as well. That might and labor and zeal doesn't necessarily open the scriptures to us to any resolve. You can fight and toil and try to put doctrine together and put ideas together, but it doesn't mean you're going to go away with clarity unto believing. I'm making some sense, right? And so here Peter goes away wondering in himself at that which came to pass. I'm going to uh, leave this here for a second in a second. But here's what I want to say. Peter is not yet ready to be an apostle. Raise your hands if you got that, because this is important. He's not ready to be an apostle. You cannot say, yes, I saw the tomb. Yes, I saw the garments all laid by themselves in an orderly fashion so it wasn't some kind of storm or something. Something phenomenal occurred, but I don't know what it is. That is not the gospel. You can't be an apostle with that. To be an apostle is to believe that he rose again from the dead. John was an apostle before all of them in terms of the criterion. Did that make some sense? And so it is with exposition of the scriptures. You can take the scriptures apart and make people go, whoa. 
But it doesn't mean they really understand the scriptures at a coherent level of clarity and comprehensiveness now. This is extremely important. So I think y'all got that right. Very important as a rule. You you and I want to always marvel and wonder at what God does, but we want him to give us understanding. So shall I keep your ways. Okay, give me understanding and I will keep your law. Right. And I will seek you with my whole heart. This is Psalm 119 all the way through. Lord, I need understanding. The people of God are called to understanding. This is first John chapter um, five, verse 20. I believe pull up 520. I just want to make sure I'm quoting this right and listen to what it says. Yes. And we know there it is. We know again that the son of God is what? And he has given us what? Comprehensive clarity on his coming, living, dying and rising again. He's given us an understanding. Christians ought not to be questioning who he is, what he did, why he did it and where he is now. That's the gospel. This is what you die for. Peter, who do men say that I am? Right. And we know that the son of God has come, has given us an understanding in order that we may know him. That is true. And we are what? In him that is true. That's beautiful. What? What an idea. So propositionally, we know truth. Personally, we know truth because the truth is in us and we're in the truth. That makes sense. Right. So now what's happening is what is what might be understood as the reciprocal knowing of the truth that takes place in our heart. He that hath the spirit hath the witness in himself. Okay, that's again, first John chapter five, verse 10, and as well as Romans eight, when you and I have the spirit of God in us, what's happening is his spirit is bearing record with our spirit. There's constant communication going on in the inner man with God and his people. That's a beautiful thing. In fact, that's the one mechanistic process that keeps you from error for a long period of time. It's good, isn't it? All right. So I want to keep going. Notice what it says. We're in him. That is true. Even in Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. And John is simply extrapolating on John chapter 17, verse three. This verse is a corollary to John 17, three. And this is eternal life that they might know you, Gnoskis, in an intimate covenant relationship where God reveals himself to us face to face. That is in the person of Christ, right? This is eternal life, that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, right? This is where salvation takes an anchor in the soul at the level of conviction of truth. And, And once this happens, you can't undo that. Child of God, you can't Once you come to believe who Christ is, you cannot unbelieve. You can go temporarily insane. You really can. But you um, you cannot undo this axiom of being a believer. To be a believer is an ontological state of being. It's not merely an academic level of status. Did that come home? All right. For some of you who didn't get it, to be a believer is something that is rooted in your nature now. It's what you are by nature. If any man, uh, as John puts it, if any man be in Christ Jesus, this is Peter, Paul rather, he is a what? New creature. And John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 lays this out in terms of what the believer. Whoever is born of God overcomes the what? And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our what? 
Right. What John is speaking to is the indomitable nature of the gift of faith in the believer, because faith is constituent with who we are, not just what we believe. Like when you're born, you can never not be born. And when you're born again, you can never not be born again. I don't care what happens to you. I don't care how old and senile and and, and starting to slob at the side of your mouth. You do. I don't care about you losing the alphabets, losing your syllables, losing your sentences. You cannot lose your salvation. Did that come home? It's very important. And and the reason why you you and I need to know this is because salvation can never be predicated upon Gnosticism. Gnosticism is always salvation based on what you know. Did that come home? The Gnostics love tying Christians up in knots when Christians are lazy and don't operate out of what we call chief organizing principles. You and I don't need to know everything, but we need to know certain things and we need to know them certainly. When you know certain things certainly, people can come with almanacs, they can come with volumes of theses, they can come with all kinds of doctrines and you are going to be able to slip those knots because of what you know and who you know. Did that make some sense? Right. It's, you don't need to know everything. You need to know certain things. You need to know him. Right. That's a beautiful truth. And when you start losing your mind, you might get down to one word, Jesus. And that would be the key to the kingdom. Did that make some sense? Jesus. Right. That'll be, that, that'll be the key to the kingdom. Yeshua. Hashim. Right. That'll be to the key to the kingdom. Kyrios. Jehovah. That'll be the key to the kingdom. Right. There's no other name among men given among men by which we must be saved, but the name of Christ. And for that seed. And John already talked about that. Didn't he talk about it in first John chapter three uh, around verse nine? He that hath the seed in him cannot ever depart from the gospel. That's what that says. He that hath the seed in him cannot ever depart from the gospel. So this is a very important principle that we just want that seed in us. All right. Now. Let's go to Acts chapter 16. I want to work through, give you, give you an exercise. We'll get this done in about 15 or 20 minutes, and then we can do some Q&A. There are three categories. We're making our way to Acts 16. I actually got to lay this principle out over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 so that this will make some sense. When we talk about the discerning of spirits, we're talking about discerning three things. Doctrine. Did that make some sense? Demons. Did that make some sense? And persons. Those are three categories. They are all called spirits. They're all called spirits. For those of you who like, you know, Rosemary's Baby and all of these old wild movies and everything, every time you hear the word spirit and demon, you're running off into the ethereal stop for a while. Just stop, okay? Because the idea of spirit has multiple categories of expression. The term spirit simply means the entity or force or influence behind what one says they believe. Let's see if we can make this work. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I'm going to read verse 29. And then I want you to hear what it says. This is verse 29, 1 Corinthians 14. I'll explain it and then we'll go on. Here's what Paul says. Let the prophets speak two or three. Now, what are the prophets? They're persons. What are the prophets? They're teachers. Y'all got that? The prophets are persons and teachers. Let them speak two or three and let the other what? In other words, there's rules to speaking. 
This is why in our churches, we don't just let people stand up and give a word because you're promoting chaos. Let two or three and notice it didn't say one or three and notice it didn't say two, one and three. It gave us an ordinal order of one, two and three. That means things are done in order, which is what we do in our community. In our community, you will find our prophets, our teachers, our men, and some of our women capable of communicating biblical truth in an orderly fashion. Did that make some sense? Right. And it's done this way with structure so it can be efficient in its dissemination of truth, efficient on two levels of being able to help the downline all the way up to the adults and then also being able to be retained and contained so that we don't have what might be called um, um, rogue teachers or um, uh, this is a a term in biology, uh, free radicals running around teaching wild and crazy things. Right. So what we don't do is just let people go around teaching. Did that make some sense? Right. So you, you have to get approval from leadership and leadership has to actually be able to go. We can trust that man or trust that woman. Does that make some sense? Right. Because everybody want to be a prophet at that point. Now we're getting ready to discern spirits, aren't we? We're getting ready to, to, to discern whether that spirit is subject. Look at verse 32. Because this is what Paul says. If they do this teaching one by one, notice what it says. And the spirit of the what? There it is. That's your word discerning spirit. You got that? And the spirits of the prophets must be what? To the what? You know what that means? You can never get somebody to say, I'm doing this and I can't help myself. I can't help myself. I got to teach. Well, you, you first you got to be approved. Then you got to be permitted. You're going to just say, I got to teach. Now you're a free radical. We must quarantine you because you're going to affect the body politic in a way that's not good. Does that make sense? Right. But notice what the Bible says. Every legitimate prophet is able to subject his spirit. That's what it says. Right. And the spirit of the prophet is subject to the who? Don't tell me that you're operating by the spirit of God and you can't control yourself. See what I'm getting at? A same thing in the church. You know, I will tolerate a little bit of noise on Sunday, but we're, gonna, we're not going to let y'all get cacophonous up in here because it's not control. It's a distraction. It's OK for us to do the antiphony like we do. Amen. A little here, there. That's that's all very healthy. Right. Because human beings are obligated by the scripture to praise God. So it's going to come out in one way. Verbal expression, physical expression, kinetics. Right. And some some um, some antiphony among the congregation. I definitely don't worry, uh, worry about that. But when it gets distracting, we know we got a problem. That person is not subject in themselves. Way too loud, way too bothersome to the person in front of them and in back of them. Right. And the churches of Christ are called to order. Right. So now notice what goes on here. He says the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Now, if you will, notice what it says over in verse 37. This is very important. If any man think himself to be a prophet, right? Or what? There it is. That's your word. I just want you to understand when we use the word panuma or pneuma, two ways to express it in the Greek, the word panuma or pneuma is not always merely talking about the ethereal celestial spirit. It's talking about the person who is occupying a position of teaching. 
They are called spiritual. Now, notice what Paul says here. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the what? Here's another fundamental truth that Paul laid down in the church of Corinth to destroy the Delphi Oracle trends that were going going on in the church and people just rising up with a word from the Lord. Here's what he was saying. If somebody's going to be in the community preaching, he better acknowledge that we are the apostles of the Lord. That, that God sent us and the person of Christ sent us to lay down the doctrines in the church. No one gets to go contrary to the doctrines of scripture. No one gets to say, I believe this and it doesn't square with apostolic teaching. Did that make some sense? If they're going to call themselves spiritual in all of those, you know, groups of house churches in Corinth, they better acknowledge that God sent me to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Because if I have the spirit and they have the spirit, they'll know that I have the role of being apostolic. And when you go back to first Corinthians 12, as well as 14, here's what you know, it's 12, that God gave them apostles and then prophets and then teachers. That is your taxis. The teacher never supersedes the prophet. The prophet never supersedes the apostles. The apostles laid the foundation, then you have the prophetic ministry, and then you have what is called the didactic ministry. The teachers come in under the prophet who proclaim, and they help explain the word of God. That's what we have in our community. The apostle in our community is the New Testament. The prophet in our community is your pastor. The teachers supplement what is taught here. Did that make sense? That's how that works. That's how that works in any community. Otherwise, you're going to have nothing but chaos. Now, every believer individually is prophetically inclined because the essence of your teaching is prophetic. But there is a central prophet in any biblical community. They're called elders, overseers, episcopates and bishops. All right. And and we trust that God speaks to us through them. Um, So that is what I wanted to lay down. So points A, B and C are obvious. Notice what it says. Uh, We are admonished to test and try and prove what is being said. That's what they're saying. Right. That's what Paul said. Right. Uh, Two or three back in verse 32, two or three and let the others interpret. Notice what it said back in verse 32. There it is. Um, Verse 37. Go back to verse 37. I may have to go there and look at it. So they're subject to this prophet. So let me go here. I just want to make sure that we see it. First Corinthians uh, 14. Make sure we see that. Verse 29. Okay, good. Look at it. Notice what it said. There it is. Mm, Yeah. Let the prophet speak two or three and let the others what? There it is. Let them judge. Let them judge. Look at verse 31. For you may all prophesy one by one. That all may what? And all may be what? And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Yeah. And 27, yeah, 27 is going to be absolutely critical. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let him speak by two or three at the most and by course and let one what? But if there be no interpretation, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God alone. Now, the reason I'm leaving that out is because we're going to be getting into glossolalia. And one of the things that we would know about glossolalia is that it is another mode of prophecy when interpreted. Without interpretation, it does not rise to the level of prophecy. It's just babble. Did that come home? 
All right, good, good. All right, so now go with me to Acts 16. Thank you for your patience. Let's work this through. I want to do an exercise for you here that I think will work um, as we get ready to close out on this thought. I should leave that there. I really should. All right, Paul has just begun his work in the area of Philippi. You know Philippi, beautiful, small epistle in your Bible, uh, the Philippian church, Acts chapter 16. And what we're going to be looking at really ultimately amounts to a, um, a tale of three stories. You and I are really only interested in one, but the tale of three stories that we're going to actually be dealing with is the tale of the story of the Apostle Paul ministering to the uh, wayside prayer group in Philippi with Sister Lydia in a local gospel church. We'll start out of that. That will be verses one all the way through um, all the way through like verse uh, 12. Yep, that'll be verses one all the way through verse 12. Uh, verse one, then came he to Derby Lister and behold, a certain disciple whose name was Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish believed, but his father was a Greek. Verse two, which was well. OK, so now I now want to keep I want to move on. Uh, get take me over to verse 16. Uh, Acts chapter six sixteen. All right. So now go back to verse 12, verse 12. All right. So they came from this to Philippi, which is the chief city of parts of Macedonia. Macedonia is going to be in the area of what we call Asia Minor. Beautiful area. Greece is over there. Macedonia. This is where you get Philippi. This is where you get Ephesus. All of that. A colony. That means it was dominated by the Roman Empire. And we were in that city abiding certain certain days. Now, when Luke writes and he uses the phrase abiding certain days, that could be a few months or a few years. Okay. It's just in general, they're long enough there to teach the gospel and it plants, right? The the gospel does not plant in one day. They were long enough there to teach it. And this is where you get three accounts. The first account is going to be with Lydia. The third account is going to be with the Philippian jailer. Those are two stories. The story we want to deal with is in between those two with the woman who is actually attaching herself to the apostles, saying, these be the great men of God that show us the way of salvation. That's where we're going. Look at verse 14. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down, spoke unto the women which resorted there. Beautiful thing. And a certain woman named Lydia, seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us. She was a Jewish uh, believer whose heart the Lord what? Right. So you don't open your own heart. God has to open your heart. We actually believe in the work of regeneration being monergistic at the outset. Monergistic means God is operating alone. To open the heart is equivalent to opening the tomb of your soul and letting your dead soul live and come up out of the bondage of sin and death. That makes sense, right? And only God can do that, right? This is where in... in, I shouldn't I shouldn't get into this, but please understand. When you have people who compromise the gospel at the soteriological level, at the level of new birth, where they're teaching what we call synergistic theology, where you have to do something plus God has to do something results in your salvation. That is a man centered doctrine. It's demonic and it is at the root of every fundamental heresy that abides in the Christian church around the world. I just want you to know that whenever you find heresies, whether it's at the 
uh, ontological level of the nature of God, whether it's at the biblical theology level of, of, of scripture and revelation, whether it's at the sanctification level of how God works in you, or whether it's at the eschatological level. I can tell you now, bad eschatology has as its roots a bad bibliology as well as a bad soteriology. Just letting you know, when you tolerate the idea that man has an equal part in his salvation with God, you actually deify man. All right, let me go on. Notice what it says. Uh, and she attended unto the things which Paul had spoken. For God is working first, and then she's manifesting that work. Whose heart the Lord opened. That's, by the way, that's the book of Philipp, uh, Philippians, chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you the will and to do of his good pleasure. So God works in you and you work out what God works in you. Does that make sense? Good. So notice what it says in verse 15. And when she when she was baptized in her house, she besought us saying that if you have judged me, there it is, there's that word discernment again. If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she did what? Right. She proved herself to be like the two men on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. When you meet Christ, you want to stay with Christ. When you get the gospel, you're not quick to let the gospel go. This is how, you know, the spirit of God is operating, by the way. And you don't ever want this to go away. You don't ever want to get bored of the gospel. You never want to get conditioned where you can't tolerate at length the preaching of the word of God. Please understand something has happened when you have lost motivation for sound teaching and preaching of the word of God. Did you get what I just stated? When you are, when you can barely handle the word, you are in real spiritual trouble. You are dull of hearing, and therefore, you're not ready for broad and deep truth. And that's a lot of Christians today. They barely can drink a draft of God's word that will challenge them broadly and challenge them deeply. You always want to be like the psalm says, Lord, open my mouth wide and fill it. That's the way you really want to be. That's the way you really want to be. And so when you're like that, you want to thank God for that. And when you're not like that, you got to fight against it because overcoming the lethargy of the soul and indifference for God can be years of recovery. I've seen men and women get lazy on God and never recover the zeal that they first had when God was drawing them. I see it all the time. See, the goal of the enemy is to slowly and gradually and incrementally Put you to sleep. Notice what it goes on to say. She constrained them. Verse 16. Now we're getting ready to get into the work. And it came to pass as we went to prayer. Again, just because I know Greek grammar, this means it was a pattern. Like we pray every Tuesday. It was a pattern for them. Thank you, Lord. This is really clear to me. Like for, for the early church, the notion of not praying collectively, that was unheard of. I'll leave it right there. As we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination, what? Right. So the word met there means she spied them out, observed that they had a pattern of gathering. 
And, and believers should be patternistic in nature. I've taught this for a long time, too. You and I should be very predictable people. What I mean by that is our lives should be orderly enough to where people will know where you are going to be at least every Sunday. If not every Tuesday and every Friday. And there are going to be people in your life that will never understand why that's the case. There are going to be people in your life who will never understand why you'd rather be in the house of the Lord than in the tents of wickedness. There are people who will never get the tenacity of an Anna who was waiting for the salvation of the Lord and saw him when he showed up in the arms of Mary for his circumcision. Am I making some sense? There are people who will never get that we're thankful that we have seven days and then four to five weeks in a month and 52 weeks in a year. We're glad because we get to be predictable every couple of days in the same place at the same time by the grace of God doing the same thing, worshiping the same Christ, going deep with him in the same word so that we might be able to answer men and women from generation to generation. What in the world is going on in us in our lives? That does not happen when you're lazy around the word of God. It does. God won't use you if you're lazy around the word. Did that make some sense? I just want you to know it. I, you know, I, I thank God for it. So here comes this woman thinking that she's going to penetrate into the camp and actually bring it into captivity to a secular agenda. Now I'm framing it for you because you know that's what I do. See, I can take this from a micro event to a macro event by application. Can I do that? Right, because the language is giving us hints at the same kind of divination that Balaam was doing. Y'all see that? She was possessed with a spirit of what? That's what Balaam was. Balaam was a divinator, was he not? He was a soothsayer. That's what she is. So the New Testament gives us a female soothsayer. The Old Testament gave us a male one. We recognize that the soothsayer in in Balaam, along with Balak, was a high level strategic warfare against the whole body of God's people in that Old Testament scenario. Right. That is what we would call a macro narrative of spiritual warfare. Y'all keeping up with me? Okay, it's important, okay, important for you to get. The enemy works at high levels and low levels. He works on the ground and he works in the heavens. So now we're dealing with a microanalysis only because the microanalysis will help us to understand discernment, okay? Now notice what it says, which brought her masters much gain by what? That's right. She was a soothsayer. So just a couple words about it. She had the spirit of divination. Now, this was a Greek term used in the Greek culture for the god Apollos working as a kind of mystical spirit that would come upon its subjects and its subjects would begin to prophesy and their prophesying would express itself phenotypically by hissing and coiling like a snake. And then expressing. Did that come home? It makes sense to us. The Kundalini spirit is all up in the Pentecostal church doing that. Some of y'all will catch that. Makes sense to us. We've been fighting that battle for, for decades. 
hyper-emotionalism, writhing and foaming and falling on the ground and, 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 and acting out and shaking and all of that. That's your kundalini spirit. I'm not making some sense. Right. And they'll have a word for sure to anybody that's open to it. Right. They'll have a word. Why wouldn't they? They are possessed by demons and demons are perpetual beings that cross many generations and even decades and centuries. So they will be knowledgeable, won't they? And I just told you, based upon the Greek term met, means she strategically entered into the community of the faithful with the objective of actually bringing them into captivity to her doctrine. So I'm letting you know that up front, all right? It's very important for, for you to get. And I'll show you why. I'm going to kind of highlight a few discerning categories so you can pick it up when folks come into your church. Okay? And you say, ah, oh, no, I caught that, sister. You got that. You got that, that divination spirit running all up on you. The Greek term for divination there is puthon in the Greek, puthonios, from which we get in the English python, a python spirit. That's our Greek term. Y'all got that? And it's because of the slithering and moving the python spirit and hissing and hissing. And the goal of a python is to encircle you and gradually squeeze the life out of you. This here is a metaphor of regulatory capture in almost every system and uh, institution in our world. What happens with these institutions that start off quasi right? They may have good motives and good intentions, but wicked, malevolent persons come in with doctrines and ideas that seize the institution incrementally. Did that make some sense? And you and I are learning the church has also been captivated by that same historic sort of communist uh, Marxist spirit and stripped of the gospel. Has it not? You guys already know that. So I, I'm, 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 I'm speaking macro, but I'm also talking at the micro level like it can. Ha- OK, y'all, y'all paying attention to me. It can happen to a group of you. It can happen to two or three or four of you where in two or three or four of you, you're hanging out together, men or women. Um, it can happen with men. Men are just as undiscerning as women when pride gets in. Pride will blind you and cause you to violate all of the principles of Scripture when it comes to order and structure. So listen, you, you got two or three or four of you guys and you're really enjoying your fellowship. And one of them is much more charismatic than the other and much more forward and much more subtle, but also much more uh, entertaining or are beneficial to you if you're hungry for fellowship. But if you're not discerning in your fellowship, you will open yourself up to heresy and error and falsehood by that person if you don't know how to discern. Now, when the Puthanias spirit, the Python spirit is working, it will express itself in characteristics, characteristics that I want us to see now. Notice what it says in verse 17. Uh, by the way, the word soothsaying is the idea of you being able to see into the spirit realm to give men and women information that you can only get from like, let's say, a deity or a God. OK, so if people are talking to you from the standpoint of a hyper authoritarian position, even utilizing scripture, if they're speaking from a hyper authoritarian position, with a kind of self-owned authority, 
Be very careful about what you're dealing with. Did you hear what I just said? If they feel like they can press you into allegiance to them, be very leery of such a person. Such a person does not represent Christ or his apostles. Did that make some sense? All right, very, very important. There is a carnal, natural kind of authoritarian attitude and spirit on the part of certain people. When they get you into their clutches, they immediately fog your mind so that you do not see God or Christ. They become a block between you and God. I'm just going to leave that there for you right now, okay? Very important. You, we can talk about it in the Q&A. We'll be there shortly. The same followed Paul and us. Strategically, number one, her attack was at the apostle. Attack the leader. You got it? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about what that attack is here in a second. Okay, so that's the first one. Why? Because she, she has to actually... She has to actually quell everybody's concern about her go-go dancing, because, you know, she's still got the spirit of Python, so she go-go dancing. She has to quell everybody's concern with her weird hissing and all that, because she's doing that, by her pretending to give allegiance to leadership. Did y'all get that? I just want you to hold on to that for a moment. The same followed Paul and us, Luke is writing here, and did what? And did what? And did what? She was loud. That's another mark. Godly women are never loud. Let me just help you right now. Godly women are never loud. Godly women are never loud. Religious women, loud all the time. I just, y'all know the pattern? Right. You know the pattern. Religious women are loud because religious women need attention. They want to occupy a position of authority. And so even if all the sisters are talking like this, they're going to talk like this. Because they want to have a kind of superficial advantage over everyone, because why would someone want to be loud if it's not for attention? She cried. You guys got that? That's a, an expression of a prophet standing up and speaking publicly. John chapter 7, verse 37. And Jesus standing among them cried. So she wants the attention. That's how the devil works. It's important for you to get. Because what I'm giving you are categories of identity markers by which you can discern the behavior of people who are really not mature or possessed by the spirit of the living God. And she cried saying, these men are the servants of the most high God. Y'all got that? These men are the servants of the most high God. This is a very, very unusual way in which she is moving. These, these men are the servants of the most high God. So right now, what she's doing is calling attention to who? The men. All right, so far. But notice what it says. These are servants of the most high God, which show unto us the way of what? Salvation. Right. So she added a second caveat of which right now at face value, we would say, what's wrong with that? 
Would you agree with that? Right. And this is where almost all false doctrine and false teaching is hard for people to detect. Because they use flatteries. She's flattering the apostles. Do you understand that? That's a word of flattery. Flattery. This goes on in our Pentecostal churches all the time. The great men of God, the great woman of God. This is flattery. Right words, wrong motive. Right words, wrong motive. It's one thing to honor someone. It's another thing to flatter them. The Proverbs talks about the man that is that rises up early in the morning to bless his neighbor, brings a curse on him. I know y'all didn't read that in your Bible yet, right? Just pull it up, look it up. The man or the woman rising up early in the morning, blessing them with a loud voice brings a curse on them. Right, something's wrong with somebody the moment you wake up, you shouting from the top of your lungs. No, he says he's a Christian. That just must be zeal. No, it's more than zeal. We got a problem here. We have a lack of personal temperance. We have a lack of proportionality. We have a lack of a sense of social decorum. And, and we, we probably are lacking a real sense of humility if we're speaking loudly, interrupting people because we have a goal here. Right. Now, again, that's the Proverbs, right? The Proverbs will talk about in Proverbs chapter seven, referring to the um, the woman that does not know how to stay in her place. That's Proverbs seven, Proverbs 19, Proverbs 24. She's called loud and clamorous. Have you all heard that verse before? Loud and clamorous. Loud and clamorous has to do with her actually filling up the room when she enters therein. By how she dresses. Or undresses. And by how she attracts people to herself. She's loud and clamorous. Now, is that not the antithesis of the godly woman? A meek and quiet spirit, gentle, prudent. Biblically, that's attractive. Did that make some sense? And it's something way more appealing and winsome when one is attractive in the sense of modesty and decorum and social intelligence, knowing when and when not to speak. That is a universal law across the whole globe. I taught my daughters this years ago. I told them, you guys are gifted. You got a bright mom. You got a dim-witted dad. So you guys got some brains. And they all do. They, they all are excellent and, you know, very accomplished women. And I told them, but don't ever, don't ever sacrifice character for education or intellect. Don't ever use the powers of your intellect to control anybody. Whatever you learn, employ as a handmaiden to your character. Always understand what it means to be gentle, to be thoughtful, to be appropriate in how you interact as a woman. Because a good woman in that sense is very rare. Did y'all hear what I'm saying? Oh, don't get me wrong. You know, I, we all understand idiosyncratic, uh, idiosyncratic ways. We all have certain personality traits and some sisters are louder than others, right? But that's what God has given you the Holy Ghost to help you rein it in. Y'all hearing me? That's that's where he's giving you the spirit. And, and you guys have seen it here at Grace. Sisters are coming in from other communities. They go. They sit down. First thing they say, amen. 
I'm like, okay, that sister need to be taught. Am I telling the truth? She needs to be taught because she's way too loud. Way too loud. That's not respecting the community that you're in. And then here's something that you can learn as a point of application. And I really don't care for it with the men. That just really, I'm a little patient with the women. I get them two weeks. I get a brother one week. Um, Here's how you know, can know you or me or any of us when a thing like that is wrong. Extrapolate or generalize your expression across the whole congregation. Ask yourself if your behavior, your expression was duplicated or replicated by everybody in the community, would that be appropriate? See what I'm getting at? This is how you know whether it's appropriate or not. And, and, and if we don't think it's appropriate, why should you think it's appropriate? Right, character is critically important here. This lady is actually at the center of attention. What's going on in our account? She's at the center of attention. She says, these men are the servants of the most high God, which show unto us the way of salvation. She's right and she's wrong, is she not? She's right in the sense that they are instrumental to it, but she's wrong in the sense that they are essential to it. And what do we mean by that? Really, only God himself can show you the way of salvation. And so what we often have to do when we deal with false teachings, heresy, heterodoxical uh, uh, teaching is help people see where they came close to the truth but missed it by a million miles because they were still operating out of a kind of man-centered framing. Does that make some sense? Right. It, it's not, it's not, it didn't, uh, it didn't evade me also knowing how pagan religions work that she used the phrase the most high God instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what Paul and them are preaching is Christ. And this is how you and I know they were preaching Christ is because whenever Paul had to deal with demons straight up, the demons acknowledged Christ and acknowledged them. See, the whole battle in that first century in the book of Acts was around who is Jesus, not who is God. You got everybody on the planet that'll talk about God, right? And, and, and particularly in our Semitic religions, and I love hanging out with my Muslim brothers. I love hanging out with my uh, uh, Afrocentrist brethren. I don't mind hanging out with our Jewish brethren and particularly the neo-Jewish brethren that are like, you know, your uh, Hebraic, you know, um, Israelites and all that, because they will talk about the most high God, most high God, most high God, most high God, Yahweh, most high God, right? All that expression. And it is fundamentally a denial of the supremacy of the person of Christ. Did you hear what I just said? So I'll affirm them in that and draw them in to tell them, but that is not the name that saves. Because it's not. It's a veil. And the gospel's a revelation. See? Right. So the same follow Paul and cried, saying, these men are the servants of the most high God, which show us the way of salvation. So they are using flattery, which the New Testament tells us to be careful of. The proverb says flattery works ruin. Paul says they use flattery in Romans chapter 16. We need to be careful about the difference between flattery and honor. That makes sense, right? Okay. So notice what verse 18 says, because if you follow again the construction, well, this opening line is exegetical, exegetical to it, because the opening line in verse 17 says what? And this she did for what? 
many days. So now here is what I want you to mark on the part of the apostles. Are you ready? The apostle Paul was patient with her. You got it? They didn't just say, go get the dry wood, go get a gallows, let's burn her up right now. (laughs) Okay, because you got Christians that's ready to do that. He was patient with her, wasn't he? So, So that's a function of discernment. A function of discernment is actually getting your priorities right, getting your categories right. Can I talk about it just a little bit? Right. So our job and desire is for men and women to know God, to know Christ. So we must initially be patient with them. We will put up with some hissing and and forked tongues for a minute, won't we? We've done that in this community. and And you ought to, and every believer should in order to actually learn patterns. Remember we talked about uh, facial pattern recognition principles. You got to learn patterns in the realm of spiritual things too. You got to learn patterns. People are pathological. And this she did many years, but Paul being what? Right, so here becomes another aspect of the insight. Now what Paul is doing is discerning, isn't he? Is that what he's doing? He's focused too, isn't he? How do we know he's focused? He's grieved. You know, you're only grieved when your spirit is locked in on that thing and you no longer can get away from it. It becomes an assignment and it drills you down into that matter and you cannot get away from it. You're under assignment now. You're under an assignment. Being grieved is not a bad thing. It means that you have not given yourself over to indifference. Again, I'm going to say it because it may very well be. Okay, so let's look at being grieved as potentially a virtue. It means that you've exercised patience and, um, and studiousness long enough for you to go. A pattern is set here. And then you are looking at not only the pattern, but you're looking at its potential impact on others. Does that make sense? And now you are becoming concerned about its impact on others because you care about the others. I I wrestle with that a lot. I'm going to tell you, I wrestle. I wait until I'm really grieved before I get on somebody. And I'm largely what I'm wrestling with when I'm grieved. I'm wrestling with, okay, this is impacting people. I can put up with it personally. But when it's impacting people at that point, now I have to enter into the process. Does that make sense? Right. Very good. Very good, Paul. And this she did many days. But Paul being grieved, now he turned and said to the what? That's right. That's right. The entity in her, the power behind her that sustained her phenotypical expression of a serpent hissing daily. See, because what Luke did in verse 16 was tell you the essence of what she was saying. She was constantly flattering the apostles. Y'all got that? Constantly flattering the apostles. Constantly flattering the apostles. She was trying to change the atmosphere in the fellowship from the preaching of the gospel, which centers in on Jesus and the word of God and the redemption that's in Christ, which keeps all of us objectively outside of ourselves on the person of him. And now she's locked in on the men, right? And see, silly Christians will duplicate people like that in some of the most silliest things. They'll do that. They'll do that. But Paul deals with it. 
He says, I command you. Here it is. The first time his name comes up in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Love it. Love it. All right. So, you know, in a minute here, I I know I'm late. I'm going to stop here in a second. I want to just tie this down. So when you're reading narratives in scripture, you have to know that they're not giving you all of the nuances of what's going on. The essence of what Paul did was exercise this demon out of this woman by a proclamation of the authority of Christ over everything. So you have to know that. Jesus gave the apostles commandment to go into all the world and preach the gospel. On this ground, all power and authority has been given him in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So all the apostles ever had to do was invoke the authority of Christ upon that demon. Did that make some sense? Very simple. But he's coming from a position of patience. He's coming from a position of care. Now he's coming with the objective of intervening for her good. Is he intervening for her good? Right. He didn't say to that young lady, go to hell. He didn't say to that young lady, leave our fellowship. He didn't even say to that young lady, hey, you're teaching bad doctrine. Let me correct you. He dealt with the spirit behind the lady. Did he not? Right. So and he came out of her that same minute. Right. So I I want you all to work with me, you know. Uh, Oh, yeah. By the way, no Friday study next week because we're going to be eating turkey for two days. So you can come. You sure enough can come. Um, if you're dealing with a spiritual invasion into the community at this level and you've worked with it from the hierarchy of leadership down and you've been able to ascertain that this, this, this needs to be dealt with and exercised out of the midst of the community. And, and so you address it. And this is an existential threat because Paul knows it's a demon, doesn't he? It takes an hour for that demon to leave. What's going on for that hour? Remember I taught you to think through the space of scripture where it's not saying anything? Because if you don't, you won't respect process. Sometimes when you are confronting things that God gives you authority to deal with, it's still going to take some time for that thing to turn around. Right, you and I can speculate on godly association to this particular mandate that was given by the apostle, we can speculate. I'm going to ask you, what would you surmise is going on within this hour that Paul has now brought? You know, because you guys know it. Just face it. There are things going on that's not good. And, and we all kind of just go, when are we going to deal with it? When leadership going to deal with it, right? And then we deal with it. And now it's public, right? We're glad that it's been brought to the public. Now we're hoping for the process to be resolved. What do you do in the interim of it being brought to the forefront, brought to the light and being resolved? See what I'm getting at? What would be the appropriate things? We're going to talk about that here in a moment because this is about discernment, isn't it? All right. All right. So this is extremely, extremely. And he and he came he came out that same hour. So you guys remember somebody can run. We're going to start walking this through. I need somebody to run with the mics. So remember what I told you, because I could I could do this for the next study. The intervention or the insertion of this woman that is 
possessed. And by the way, she's a slave. She's a twofold slave. She's the, she's the slave of Satan and she's a slave of this system, right? That's literally what is implied by this young lady possessed of a divination spirit who brought her master great gain. She got paid well doing what she did. Y'all got that? She's a slave in two ways. What Paul did was liberate her from her bondage, did he? And actually, that's Christ working through her because that's the nature. That's the nature of the gospel. So the intervention when we are discerning the aim of it is freedom or what we might call redemption or salvation. Keep that in mind. Whenever we are confronting someone, the goal is redemption. The goal is freedom. The goal is what? Salvation. The goal is not offending somebody. The goal is not sending somebody away. The goal is not losing people because they're offended at you or offended by you. The goal is liberation. The goal is freedom. The goal is them being better for that confrontation. That's the discerning spirit that we need to operate out of. All right, let's go to work. Let's let's build on this a little bit. Any 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 Q&A, any questions? Whoever has the mic, raise your hand so I can see you so we can keep at it. Who has the mic? Who has the mic? I need mics in the air because I can't see. There we go. Thanks, sis. Go ahead on. Uh, before, before, uh, I'll say hi after hi. that. Hi. Uh, because I don't want to lose that thought. Uh, <clears throat> with the, with the div, div, divination spirits, the soothsaying, the religion. But Psalms 119, 104, I gain understanding <sighs> from your precepts. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. If you go to 159 and 160, see how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, Lord, in accordance with your love. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. So when it comes to the Lord and his precepts, all of it is righteous and it's eternal. So when we come to the divination of spirits, the soothsaying, the religion, Flattery. So is that now the enemy intervening in the walk of the Lord? Of course. I mean, like that's explicit there. She's coming in to stop the work. The goal is always to stop the work. Right. Um, But she is not not quoting scripture. She's actually quoting scripture. So the devil also (laughs) uses scripture. (laughs) But it's. Whenever the enemy comes in, his job is to stop the work. Because remember, uh, the first story is the gospel church in Philippi. Second story, the invasion of Satan into the church. Right. Third story, once Satan's kingdom is demolished by apostolic authority. Now the whole city is coming after Paul and Silas. He, they're going to jail. This thing is getting ready to ramp way up. It's going to go from a micro narrative to a macro narrative, is it not? Because that's a big account with Paul and them being placed in the bottom of the jail cell to rot, if you will. And God having to stir that thing up in a huge way. Right. So. So so on that. So when now I hit that very wrong path, how do you then distinguish that hate that's developing from this? um, this python, because it has poison in it. So how do you distinguish hating that path from now not hating the person 
themselves right. and not even having an attitude towards the person because now they're being used by this python and it's bringing that poison to you. So right. how, how do you now, wanna, as a Christian, how do you really want to <laughs> not show that person you have an attitude? Girl, now? do you need some counsel? Do you need some counsel? We got some counsel. <laughs> counsel <Gunner>. me, PJ. <laughs> I think she got a story on the Before side. Before you say, sister, you have an attitude now. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, obviously, if you are the direct target of an attack, it can be a problem for you. The text did not indicate that Paul was having a personal problem with her. He simply discerned her and, and was grieved enough. And again, we need to know how God is working in us. And we got to know our emotional makeup is something that he uses He's just not waiting for us to be like cerebrally committed to him. He will grieve us. A thing will bother us where we are agitated and agitation is not necessarily a bad thing. But you will notice he didn't say anything to her specifically. He dealt with the power that was behind it. He said to the spirit. So he understood the deeper realm of the assault that was going on. How much grace do we need to have to make sure that when an assignment is coming our way, that we do not succumb to flesh and blood arguments? That's real easy to do. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but the principalities and powers. And and they knew this because, see, they're in a region. They're in a territory of spiritual darkness. Philippi is a territory of spiritual darkness. It was implied by it being a colony of Rome and Rome had all kind of pagan gods there. And the gospel is being established in uh, Philippi, that little city. And here comes this guy that's making a bunch of money out of these soothsaying women. Right. And she's coming in to actually infiltrate the church and get the church to pay her. Can y'all see that? Right. And so Paul is dealing with that before the church gets corrupted by these Ouija board tarot card sisters wearing rags on their heads with big old rings and 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 prognostications they want to give you for twenty dollars. See what I'm getting at? And people will do it who are desperate and not grounded in God's word. So Paul intervened efficiently to actually deliver this woman. And this brought disruption to the whole city, which means the city was engaged in witchcraft and did not like the fact that the gospel was making inroads in the city. Did that make some sense? So we're going from micro to macro. Who else has the mic? Go on, go on, uh, Tamara. Definitely. Glad to have you in the house. We're glad to have our sister back home. Thank you. Yeah. Is it on? Is it on? Okay. (laughs) Hey, VJ. Hey, hey. Hey, everybody. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going a, a little different way. I'm, sure. I'm, I have, I've been having an a issue, uh, a concern with um, uh, not hearing from, uh, in my opinion, um, le- so-called leaders in the church, you know, this is excluding you, not you. Mm-hmm. I have to look from Texas out here, you know, but um, about what's going on, like in with Israel and everything. And, and I listen to the radio show and everything, you know, but still I'm looking out at other you have to. Um, uh, people and I'm saying, 
you know, we, we hear, of course, the prophecy guys are, are, are having a field day right now. Yep. Uh, the uh, dispensationists, I hear them talking, yep. you know, and I hear, uh, and I hear the post meals talking. But the center, the Christ-centered ones, the, the you know, covenant guys, I'm trying to, I'm saying, where are they at? Where are they at? I'm trying to discern, like, what, why are they not, uh, their voice is not being heard for, for the Christians that need to know that we need to be praying for the gospel, gospel that we're looking for Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking for Christ. We're preaching Christ. You know, where, where are they at? So, this so, all goes along with it so mm-hmm, well, and mm-hmm. I'm, trying, I'm trying to discern where are these voices at? Now, the way you framed it, I want to bring it out because we've got hundreds of people listening just on the platform of eschatology, four views. Um, three are historic church views. The fourth one, as you guys have heard me teach, premillennial dispensational theology is a Johnny come lately that I've already warned you guys about, does not actually have its roots in the gospel at all. And I've been teaching you guys that right lately through its historic roots in Zionism. And, and, and that's something you all going to have to learn. But you don't have to worry. It's coming to the forefront because Zionism is about war. OK, yeah. and that's happening. Um, and these are the robbers of God's people seeking to establish division. I talked about that on my Monday show because, you know, I dealt with this many, many years ago. Um, it's in the book of Daniel, chapter 11, uh, where, where Daniel is told about the micro narrative that the robbers of his people would rise up and seek to establish division. What does that mean? Engage in bringing to pass what they think is prophecy based upon their own efforts rather than letting God actually bring things to pass according to his word. Okay, that's that's another factor. But America, you and I were born in a country that from its inception was engaged in directing its powers on a military and on a political level for controlling the whole world. You need to know that. If we had time, we could go way back. Our country was predicated upon the struggle of freedom versus tyrannical powers. The tyrannical power still made its way into the body politic of America coming from England. When we came out from under the tyranny of King George, we were trying to extricate ourselves not only from King George, but we were trying to extricate ourselves from the uh, from the uh, Knights Templar, from the Masons, the Rosicrucians, from the Catholic system and a whole bunch of other uh, pseudo uh, religious systems, the Kabbalahism of the uh, Jewish sect as well. All of that was working hot in uh, Europe uh, and the Puritans were trying to get away from that. But it made its way on over here because the founding fathers made it very clear that if we didn't keep an equilibrium on our government in terms of limited government, that government would become so big and so massive that the Satan, satanic system would dominate it and control it. And anyone with even one eye can go to Washington and see the whole infrastructure of the Masonic system all the way up to um, some of the historic uh, what we would call religious systems, secular religious systems of the world that control the destiny of America. Down on the ground, they let us play religion. Okay, but once you get up to the level of powers in government, 
your religion is limited to their overall trajectory of what they want to do. So this is what I'm teaching you guys through the Zionism studies. You guys are learning that there. Getting back to the four, um, uh, four um, characteristics of biblical eschatology as the church had dealt with it, the amillennial position is what you're talking about. And that's because the amillennial uh, community, the reform community that initially uh, uh, championed an amillennial view, those churches are collapsing up under um, a neo-Marxist control as well and are becoming liberal. Those churches are becoming liberal. Um, that's why you won't hear them in, in the communities. The pastors don't have the confidence to actually speak in terms of eschatology because they have been completely captivated by the um, the Marxist attack in the area of uh, racism, Black Lives Matter. Uh, they've been completely toppled. You guys saw some of that happening back a few years ago with some of our stately men that I'm not going to name because people get offended when you talk about their teachers, but they've been captivated by the Black Lives Matter movement because many of our churches did engage in severe racist behavior with African-Americans here. And now they are suffering the consequences of the exposure and they don't know how to say we were wrong. That was not right. Let's 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 get that and move on. They're still reeling to and fro because what the enemy is doing, he's not only getting us at the political level, he's getting us at the ideological level, at the social level, at the academic level and at the spiritual level as well. And, and all of our high churches are in all those systems. So uh, America is struggling with syncretism that has muzzled the mouth of the prophet in the church. So you have no prominent prophets in our churches except the handful of heretics that are speaking up in terms of Zionism. OK, the premillennial dispensations, straight heresy. We'll get a chance to unpack that and completely pierce that demon through in a little while. We will if God doesn't just plainly do it. But know that that's the case. Our post-millennial brethren are who are who are um, benefactors of the amillennial position are operating from an optimist view. This is called an optimist view of eschatology, and they're looking forward to this evil turning into something good over the next five or 10 or 15 years. They don't have any kind of eschatological timeline for it, but because of an optimistic view of eschatology, they believe that Christ will ultimately turn all this around and that all of these uh, balkanized uh, states and countries that are, that are now fighting while at the same time organizing. This is what you need to know. While there are rumors of wars and wars going on, they are actually organizing. They're restructuring as a global system, okay? There is a major move going on in Israel around that. You think Israel is, is somehow some, you know, uh, fearful little state that's in danger of being annihilated. Nothing could be further from the truth. They aren't going anywhere. And it's not because God has his hand on them. He does, but he has his hand on all the nations. He has his hands on all the nations because they are coming together to create a conglomerate, which will come out of the fog of war that we're dealing with now. When this fog of war is over, the, the United Nations and the global agenda will be centered, as I told you, 
in an Israeli confederacy. I'm just telling you now, you, you got to understand their goal is a one world government. OK, that is their goal. So the a lot of the talking points is, is just lies. OK, and as Christians are falling prey to it left and right. If you listen to what I'm sending you guys, you're picking up on it. There's a long history around this. Um, as a rule, our faithful Orthodox churches make the same mistakes that they've always made when they don't know how to discern being prophetic from being priestly. So they did this too uh, in the Second World War. In the Second World War, our churches were supposed to speak up to the conflagrations and judgments that were taking place in Europe, and particularly when it came to Hitler and it came to, uh, to Germany, and it came to the annihilation of people through the pogroms. Our churches should have spoken up. Are y'all listening to me? They should have spoken up. But here's what you got to know. Our churches are way more captivated by state and state policies and state uh, doctrine than people want to be honest about. I mean, I've been saying this for a long time. Our churches are captivated by politics. This is why right now, Many people are being tossed to and fro around this pro-Palestine, pro-Israel thing. I told you, be careful not to get trapped by that false dichotomy. Didn't I tell you that? Mm -hmm. But you see it already happening, right? And you see it happening with with ostensibly good brethren, too. And and that's why I'm saying, like, like if I... If I had to say a couple names, like Vody Bakum, who's Amil, and, uh, you know, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, a couple more other ones that... It's just like, I don't hear any of two, them. Two things, two things there. I, you shouldn't have said it, but that's okay. It's not a reproof because I already know, you know, I know those guys. Yeah. I, All yeah. right. So I was trying to give you an explanation as to why my reformed brethren come late. I didn't get a chance to finish. Oh, okay. There are patterns with how some of us are as persons and as denominations. So this is why uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer did what he did, because he didn't see the churches properly assessing the depth of the danger that was going on in Europe and in Germany and in France and, and Switzerland with, with the move that Hitler was making. He didn't hear the churches over there or over here speaking up. He didn't hear that. So he thought he would just join a bunch of the crusaders at trying to assassinate right. Hitler. Right. I, I, I give him all props. Because, see, you have to ask yourself, if you had an opportunity to lay down your life for the good of your fellow men, would you do it? So so don't 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 judge him. OK, he, he was he was hoping and waiting for people to stand up and say something. But see, our churches always prove themselves to be captivated by the political system. So this is why when Black Lives Matter blew off and and and, you know, white folks is bad and black folks is good. Do you guys remember that? It just happened. None of our churches stood up to speak out against that. Very few of them. I now, think now, that's my my fear. My OK, concern. so hold on. Hold on. I'm not done. <laughs> uh, and you shouldn't be afraid. I mean, not, I don't mean fear. Right. Like, but my you, concern. You, you have to be discerning my and concern. be discerning and thoughtful because. I've been watching this enough to know that they haven't recovered from being punched in the face through not being able to speak clearly on COVID. See, when I listen to the guys who have political power among my Christian brothers and they got COVID wrong, once I knew they got COVID wrong, I knew they weren't ready for this battle that I'm dealing with. 
because the same people that were behind the COVID scam are behind this thing that's going on in Israel. Same people. Did y'all hear what I'm saying? The same people that are controlling the mechanisms uh, around the COVID and all of that stuff are the same people governing the narrative around Israel and Palestine. Same people. This is why you're seeing certain political talk show hosts at war now. I just sent you guys some clips on it today because you never know who's going to actually be able to see through the fog and identify the enemy and then be bold enough to speak up. But some of them are and they're brand new Christians. They haven't even been in the faith that long, but they did learn growing up how snakes work. And so you got a lot of captivity going on. I'm going to give Vody. Uh, a minute, because I actually know Vodi is deeply solid exegetically in terms of eschatology. We have the whole same eschatological method and hermeneutic and prophetic application of it. So I expect him to speak up at some point. But here's what you can know with a person like Vodi, because he's much more today. um, He's much more an evangelist scholar today with with his apologetics than he is a statesman. So he's not going to just stand up and rush in and call Israel what he should be calling Israel and making a distinction between the state, the government and the many different categories of the people that are in Israel. Because without doing that, you are completely confounding the issue. If you don't make a category between the rulers and even in the rulers, there's two tiers there. If you don't make a category between those two tiers, because there's a major diabolical tier at the top level of the Israeli state with Netanyahu behind it. okay, and then you got tiers all the way down to your Orthodox Jews. I've sent that stuff on you guys. They know better. They've been knowing better for a long time. And then you got the common people on the ground that don't want all that hell because they know in a personal relationship with their Palestinian brothers, they get along fine. They're trying to figure out why do people have to always be at odds with each other and kill each other? Because that's what beast kingdoms do. Y'all got that? But I told you Israel is no different than America. Sometimes I don't know who's who, who's Balaam and who's the donkey, who's the ass, Israel or America. But I know they both are riding in the same direction. I already know that. Um, Our churches probably won't speak up because most of them are captivated. And what I mean by that, the bigger your church becomes, the more likelihood it's trapped by the infrastructure of governmental policies that that can actually get at them if they speak out like what I'm doing. Do you understand what I just stated? You know, so. When your churches are five or six or seven thousand strong, they have ton. The, the, the enemy has tons of inroads into your church at different levels of government, at different levels of policy, et cetera, et cetera. That's why your church can get that big. I'll be sending you guys something out real soon, showing you all of the faces that are part of the APAC, part of the Jewish movement. And, and then you'll be able to see. OK, and they don't want you to really know that, but they are. Because they've conflated Americanism with Christianity for so long. Did that make some sense? Right. Now, when you when you conflate America and Christianity, you are Revelation 13, beast one and beast two. You are politics and religion together. If you tell me that to be American is to be Christian, 
I know you are now in the same trap as the false dichotomy or false bifurcation in Israel. To be an Israelite is to be Jewish. That's not true. So I'm trying to show you that what, what some are waking up to is the pendulum has swung from white people bad, black people good, to if you don't believe in Zionism, you're racist again. It's the same thing happening all over again. Y'all got that? Showing you the category. And some people are picking up on it. I just sent you guys something on it recently, and you will. So imagine pastors who, first of all, are not out of the fog on COVID. They're also not out of the fog on Trump. They have no idea the complexity of that warfare. They don't know what to do. They are mute. And now they're struggling with a bigger power than even the Black Lives Matter that came under George Soros and others. So see, that was the left operating. Now it's the right. Remember I told you both the left and the right are on the same pump cart? Didn't I tell you that? If you don't have a solid biblical worldview to rise above both of them, to see the puppet masters running the religious right, telling you that if you don't join us in this war in the Middle East, that you're, you know, anti-Semitic, you know, then you're trapped, right? You're trapped. And what I would say to you is if you're free, as I am, uh, walk in your freedom uh, and, and pray for the ones that are not free. Right. And I, so you know what I do with you guys? I'll send you clips on both sides. I'll help you see the Jewish side. That's why several months ago I knew what was coming. I wanted you guys to have empathy for the Holocaust and all of that. Remember, we did that whole exercise. I, I wanted you to overcome the impulse to um, to swing to either extreme. You know, the 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 Holocaust didn't happen. It did happen. Now. Why it happened and how it happened is another conversation that most people are not ready for, but I've given you guys clues. What really went down? It's a whole nother issue. All right, so now the pendulum is swinging over here again and it's knocking Americans off its feet. The Israeli people, the people in Israel and Palestine, they're clearer on this than Americans are. Here's what you can know by this statement. Your media is a demonically pathological lying system. When it opens its mouth like George Bush Sr., just know it's lying. Okay, just just know that. And, And when you meet Christians who buy it as if it's gospel, just know your Christian brother or sister is ignorant. Okay, just know they're ignorant, all right? And they're operating again out of ignorance. And and when you're ignorant, you can be fearful. And, and we have to be patient with that, like we had to do with the COVID thing. Um, so I'm, I'm going to have to let that sit with you right there. You just be patient. Uh, you know, you've been blessed because you, you grew up here. Right. You really have. And, and now you know that through these these mediums, there are other there are other good communities out there in the world who are clear on this. Just imagine the complete silence of your media around 1.5 million Christians in Palestine. Just imagine the complete silence of the right, so-called Christians in America, around 1.5 million Christians. 
in Palestine and in Israel like they can die and it doesn't even matter. This is why I say politics and religion ain't nothing but a beast. See, you see Jesus being crucified all over again. That's why he told you if they did it to me, they're going to do it to you. You and I just want a lens to be able to see who's who and what's what so that we don't justify the wicked and condemn the righteous. All right, who has the mic? Because I want to be able to wrap it up. Who has the mic? Did anybody else have the mic? Okay, Terry. Uh Uh-uh, you can't do that. You got to talk in the mic, brother. Back in 1970, Mm -hmm. um, I used to work in the government. In the place I worked at, we had teletype machines in a room. Those teletype machines were from every news organization throughout the world. And one of my jobs was to scan this information and look at it and decide who needed to see it. The information that came on the teletypes, by the time it was massaged, disseminated, and all the other things they do with it, and it hit the nightly news, totally different. Right. Totally different. So when you say you cannot believe the media, this is one of the biggest facts you can speak to this situation and that's going on in the world right now. Mm-hmm. So notice, our brother, this is what I love about grace. We're not that big, but we actually have people who have been in a lot of different experiences. I know people that work in the FBI and the CIA, too. Some, some know me in a negative way, but that's just because I'm marginal with my teaching. I'm pushing up against it. Um, I'm not holding, I'm not towing the line. And so I could be a problem, a person of interest if, if we grew too much. But right now they operate out of a level of power that we so that there is an open market for discourse because of new technology with all these different platforms. They can't control it yet, but they're working on it over the next couple, two or three years. When things come together at the larger uh, global governance level, they will control media much more than they're controlling it now. So like even what we're saying here it won't be able to be disseminated as far and wide as we would like it to for just to inform people, and wake people up. That's what's going on in media right now. They are making policies around the world to clamp down on what they call misinformation and disinformation, which is a fallacy of logic. Because who's going to determine what is misinformation and disinformation? If you don't have groups from all sides who are professionals capable of bringing data and information that are factual in nature to the table to determine what is legitimate news. That's already been taken away for hundreds of years. As my brother just stated, there are central places where all the data comes in, it gets curated, it gets modified, and then it gets spoon-fed to these other uh, news outlets. Does that make sense? That is not freedom of speech. But anyhow, that being true, and I thank you for it, Terry, because people, you know, don't want to believe us that our that our country is captivated in that regard. It just it just is. Um, And and I'm not sure what the solution is going to be. All I know is that what you and I have to do is keep working with the freedoms that we have now and, and keep speaking up and keep informing people. And God can turn it around if he wants to. But he may take us through a conflagration. The powers that be want a third world war. You have to know that. They want a nuclear exchange. 
They don't want to blow up the whole world, but they do want to shake up the world. And you will be surprised at what is slated to be the sacrificial lambs for these nuclear wars. Okay, so that I can't get into now, but you have to know all wars have been financed. All wars have been controlled by the big bankers from the top. There's no way that they have not. This is why I love my Bible, because our Bible showed in the last chapter of Matthews how that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was censored, clamped down, and people were paid by the government to go around saying they stole his body and no one knows where it is. That is your paradigm for censorship at the highest levels of government. Did that make some sense? Mm -hmm. And it is not a coincidence that all this is going on in Israel. Mm -hmm. Last thing I would like to say, uh, Pastor Jesse, is for those of you who do not know it, the state of Israel has nuclear weapons. They are a nuclear weapons power. Yeah, we know that. That's why I said what I said. Um, that does not mean that they will actually do the strike. I'm going to let you finish, James, and then I'm, I'm just going to close because I know people are hungry to hear this if you, if you want to. Okay. That does not mean... So on the table are a number of sites for nuclear exchange. Okay, because the powers that be would love for NATO to have a geopolitical shift in favor of globalism. Right now, there's a major split between Russia, China, Africa, and a few other states and the West and NATO. Those alliances are incongruent for their overall objective. You have to know that's a good thing. This move that is taking place here in, in uh, Palestine has accelerated a, a potential agenda of a nuclear exchange to reshift the, um, the balances of power in the Middle East. That's what they're negotiating. I'm hoping it doesn't happen, but don't be surprised. You don't make nuclear bombs with the intention of not using them. This is why we use the hydrogen bomb on Hiroshima. You have to, you have to know at some point they get used because war is insanity. And the people that strategically set up war games are insane. This is why I say to my Christian brothers and sisters, you are foolish. You are sinfully foolish. If you tolerate war language, like people don't matter. You are sinfully foolish and in danger of abysmal darkness, if you can be comfortable with whole masses of societies being wiped out in war, you are nothing but part of the religious beast system. Do you guys understand what I just said? It's so contrary to the gospel that you cannot call yourself a Christian and that you are like Christ or the apostles who were peacemakers, even to the point of laying down their life versus promoting wars to advance the goal. This is where America, I think, is in real danger out of the privilege of power. And Christians on the ground are, have fed at the troll of secularism and comfort so long that it feels like it can open its mouth in condemnation of a people group 
when half of the people group are teenagers and under. And your media does not emphasize that because your media is part of a facilitation of uh, brainwashing psyop to destroy your capacity to be empathetic and human, which is the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is to make you human and to make you better than human, to make you have the capacity to love your enemy, which you are not hearing in this BS going on right now in the Palestine uh, pro-Israel stuff. Did y'all hear what I just said? Nothing of the tenets of the gospel are emerging from your so-called Zionist Christian brothers. Hence, the beast is showing up right there and all of that. And I think, PJ, that's why the issue of censorship obviously is so key because I just marvel what would happen if, uh, if America, all citizens, could see the truth of what was going on down there, like we're seeing in the country. If they saw that, they, this would flip in a minute. So they, they have to pressure it. Right. They, they have to keep trying to keep a lid on it, and they're trying. But I think there's holes being poked in it because we still have access uh, to the information. And just like what's going on over there, like the questions that the sister was asking, if you're this nation and you have all this defense system, how'd you get caught slipping or right. were you caught? Right. Or were you caught slipping? Right. Was it allowed to happen? Right. I mean, that's just questions out there. I mean, how do you let low-tech people just come in and then don't even respond? All those questions she, she put out there uh, have to be answered. I think we know, that we, we know the answer to them, but since no one's going to ask that question publicly, you know, we're going to act like it doesn't exist. And so, but like you said, the people on the ground level, it's been living together with each other for thousands th- of years. Th- th- thousands of years, love each other, Muslims, Christians. It's not even about that. You don't even hear about nope. you know, that narrative. Nope. But if you talk to the people on the ground floor, like the sister who went back from San Francisco, there you go. Who, whose father hasn't been over there in decades, she, she's exposing the whole thing. Beautiful. I mean, wasn't, that, wasn't that her? That's journalism. That was, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, that was powerful. Yeah. You know, and, and, and finally, to wrap it up, I just wanted to get to that last part about the, the scripture uh, when Paul talked to the spirit and it came out that self-same hour, uh, what took place in that hour? My, you know, my answer would be prayer. Yes. I, mean, I can't imagine what else you, you, yeah. you could be doing. No, I mean, it could be like, more things, but I'm glad you said prayer. Why wouldn't a decree, a proclamation for exorcism out of a person that is a human, eternity-bound soul, a precious female, maybe a young daughter, we already know is captivated by two demons, carnal and spiritual. Why wouldn't we all be praying? Why wouldn't we all be caring on her? Why, we wouldn't, why wouldn't we be loving on her? Right, because the whole church, when we're operating in the humility of Christ, we as a collective have the spirit of God. Why wouldn't we be praying for exorcism? See what I'm saying? And many other things that would constitute spiritual virtues and verities when we care about human beings. This is why I say, don't be calloused and religious. Put your child in that place. That's all you got to do. Put your own babies in those places. That's all you got to do. That's all you guys have to do. And then you you won't be so quick to be self-righteous or are dictatorial in your theological positions. You, you'll, you'll feel and you'll sense. Um, very important. I'm going to say a few things in close. Uh, oh, go on, go on, Donna. That was my question. Okay. Um, 
So there's a lot to learn and be more committed to learning than knowing. Um, that's what I do want to say, because that this rabbit hole goes deep and organizing your thoughts around the history of deception and war goes all the way back to the fall and organizing yourself around uh, media and data control goes all the way back to the Greek culture. It actually goes back before your Asian cultures know it well. Genghis Khan knows it well. They all know how to create narratives to deceive the masses, but their philosophical constructs coming up out of the uh, Greek culture that um, is pretty much consistent with our society because we are a very Neoplatonic society. We, we can easily be deceived uh, by our government because we have been told to trust what comes out of their mouth uh, and we have, been, we have been deceived into thinking that we are a democratic society when we're not. So we got a lot of, 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 of uh, a lot of um, veils to remove from our eyes before we really see what's going on in, in our country and, and can pray for it for it correctly. Um, but what I would say is um, understand that what's going on at the top, they're not divided. So you can viscerally argue against Biden or Trump. And I just want you to know, Trump is scooped up into it as well. You have to know this. And here's the way you can know anytime anyone is scooped up in it. You can know by what they say and by what they don't say. Okay? Um, I don't know whether or not he can extricate himself, but we're used to the pendulum swinging in a limited way, both sides. Everybody's tired of Biden because Biden has just been an absolute mess. Um, and, and, and certain people would be glad for Trump to get back in and make concessions, but the concessions that people would make would demonstrate the hypocrisy of their valiant position on things like COVID, which really hasn't gone away in terms of a policy. We actually know that the World Health Organization is working with governments to continue to peddle these uh, messenger RNA technologies in different formats in different ways and to also implement severe punishment for people who oppose it. So there are theaters of war that are going on at different levels. And if a Christian just gets stuck on this kind of Palestine-Israel thing, this is where focus trap kills you. Did that make some sense? This is where focus trap because they love for you to think the whole battle right now is just about around getting your eschatology right. Nope. There's, this is way bigger than that. But if you do understand the broader picture of what's going on, your eschatology will be better. OK, but we're in a fog of war where nobody is going to be certain right now of any kind of concrete eschatological system. No one's going to be certain. OK, the best of the millennial brethren, they're trying to still figure out where we are. The premillennial dispensationalist guys, they're bluffing. OK, when I listen to them, I'm going, are oh, you bluffing? They still haven't entered into robust, serious exegetical debate by other serious brethren across the different disciplines. See, they're no different than the media. I want you to get this. What the media does is divide us into camps. So over here in this camp, you'll notice a lot of the presentations I sent out to you on both sides. If you listen to one side, very compelling. All by itself. 
You listen to the other side, very compelling all by itself. When you catch both of them together, you go, ah, one is clearly superior to the other. That is Proverbs 18, 17. That is hearing the whole matter before answering. Allow yourself to go through the rigor of hearing things that you don't agree with. It helps you become strong at holding the impulse to disagree just because you don't agree with it. Hear it out fully. Find its strengths. When its weaknesses show up, thank God you can see those weaknesses and go, ah, this is why this thing is intolerable. But you must know any system that holds up for 100 years or 200 years or 300 years, it has some arguments behind it, okay? Um, and, and like I said, finally, I, I, I shared this rule years ago, and you guys can adopt this as a, like, um, a quick analysis for anything theological. Anything sociological and political, we're done here. If it doesn't exalt Christ, if Christ is not at the center of that system, pretty much be sure you're dealing with an antichrist system. For me, the notion that we would seriously tolerate one nation having privilege and superiority over others, and we're hearing all that crap around, you know, if you bless Israel, God will bless you. That's actually anathema. And we can demonstrate that scripturally, but I'm leaving it alone right now because if dumb people want to get stuck on, on Genesis 12, 3, they can. But boy, how quick you have been removed from the blessing that comes with the one that these Israeli states hate. And his name is Jesus. They despise him. At the governmental level, he's in hell, wallowing in his own urine. Am I making some sense? Right, and I'm like, whoa, all you got to do is read your Bible. And if they call you uh, anti-Semite, that's what they call Paul. See how this is in equivalence to Black Lives Matter? Like black people can be racist if you act like white people. And the Jews can be anti-Semites if they oppose their government. This is the uh, entrails of Zionism that's controlling all of these puppet hands, okay? And at the economic level, way at the top, Islam is involved in it too, economically. Now, now y'all going to be told Islam is really the boogeyman. No, it's not. Islam is not the boogeyman. Islam is a distraction. The boogeyman is way closer than you and I want to admit. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for my brothers and the sisters. Help us to think these things through carefully. Help us to trace the dots and, uh, and help us to walk in love. Help us to hate evil and to hate war and to love truth and to love Christ as our Palestinian Christian brothers and sisters are doing.
as our Jewish brothers and sisters and our Islamist brothers and sisters in Israel are doing, as well as Palestine. Help us never to be suddenly deceived by superficial labels, but to judge everyone per capita and see where men and women stand. As we go our way, give us traveling mercies. Lord, prepare us to worship with our brother tomorrow and to honor the home going of his dad uh, and then prepare us for worship on Sunday. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.